Hear now God's holy word from Ephesians chapter 1, beginning our study in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Thus far, the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father, we praise you and we do give you thanks for your word. We thank you for its preservation. We thank you for its truth. We thank you that we have it now so that we can hear, as it were, your voice speaking to us today. So by your Holy Spirit, strengthen us and fill us and illumine us and open up our hearts and minds that we may hear your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This past week, we passed a major milestone in the history of the Garner family. My daughter upgraded from a learner's permit to a, a full driver's license, or I guess it's in North Carolina, it's kind of a halfway driver's license, but still, uh, she's allowed on the roads by herself without any supervision, which is frightening, and it's scary to everybody. Should, Y'all should be terrified. Uh, she's, she's really good. She's fine. But it's, it is terrifying, isn't it? For the first time, we handed a key to my daughter and said, okay, go, go to Chick-fil-A and take off. And she did it. And she came back in one piece and the car still works and everything's fine. Oh, her mother and I are learning in this, in this new stage of life, in this new phase. We're learning how to let go. We're learning how to trust her. Um, and many of you have experienced this with your own children. It, it, it feels like we brought home this tiny pink bundle from the hospital just a short while ago. And now this tiny pink bundle is a human being with a driver's license. It's just terrifying. It's just so strange. How is this woman, uh, you know, how, how did this child turn into this young woman? How did this happen? Well, one of, the, one of the many things that I've stressed as we've gone through this process and talked about the responsibility of driving and uh, she's growing into this responsibility, one of the things I've stressed is the necessity of the right amount of confidence and comfort behind the wheel. Overconfidence is deadly. If you have an inflated sense of your own abilities as you speed, as you swerve through traffic, as you pass people on the shoulder, as you play with your phone, as you take turns on you know, two wheels and, and tearing through town, you are going to get somebody hurt and you are going to be hurt as well. That is overconfidence and that is deadly. But a lack of confidence will also get you in trouble. A lack of confidence that, 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 that breeds indecision or, or it, it makes you too scared to drive. If you're, if you're too timid when you're merging onto a highway or when you're going through an intersection, that's deadly as well. Timidity, a lack of confidence, a lack of composure can be disastrous. It will cause you to make dumb mistakes. And those two, those two ditches, overconfidence and a lack of confidence, are always getting us in trouble. It doesn't matter if you're talking about a job interview, you don't want to be overconfident, you don't want to lack confidence, playing a sport, learning a skill, this, this, we're always bouncing between the two. And, and the right amount of confidence is absolutely critical to live life skillfully. What's also interesting, and I'm sure you've observed this, is that it's much easier for stupid people to be overconfident because they don't know what they don't know. And what they know, they think they have a mastery over. And that makes them very confident, very foolishly confident. And, and people who 
are a little bit more intelligent tend to be uh, underconfident because there's all this stuff they don't know and they know they don't know it, right? So, so we, we're always bouncing between these two. The confidence is such a great word. I love the word confidence. It means with faith, right? Con fide, with faith. Confidence is a, is a great word and that's something we're all growing into, isn't it? As, as we move through the world, as you and I mature, as we learn how to function, we're always growing into new responsibilities. How to make decisions as an adult, not out of a place of fear, not out of a place of terror or anxiety or confusion, but to live from a position of faith, of trust, a sense of identity that, that this is who I am and this is what I've been put here to do. You, you can see it in the difference between an awkward 13-year-old and a, and, a, and a confident 25-year-old, right? Like, you, you know, when you're first starting out, you don't know how to hold your hands. You don't know how to stand. You don't know, you don't know how to talk. You don't know, how, you don't know when to shut up. You don't, know when to, you don't know when to listen. And then when you grow and you mature, you gain poise. You gain strength. You gain an identity. Yes, this is who I am. I have something to offer. I have something to say. And, and that identity and that confidence is something we grow into. As Christians, it is critical that you and I mature and grow up to learn how to walk in God's world, not with an overinflated sense of self-confidence, leaning on our own understanding, ignoring counsel, ignoring God's word, not with that. Neither do we live with fear and a lack of confidence. We're not timid. We live life with faith, confide, confidence, and our confidence is in Jesus. In Jesus is our identity. In him is our strength. In him is our life. And this is one of the big topics. This is one of the major subjects of the letter that Paul, the apostle Paul wrote to the Christians in Ephesus. That letter is the book of the Bible we know as the book of Ephesians. And we'll be looking at our position in Christ, our position in Jesus as we work through this little letter. What does it, what does it look like to be in Christ? And how does that shape our lives together? I've titled this series of lessons, Mystery and Manners. And I shamelessly steal that from Flannery O'Connor who wrote a series of essays called Mystery and Manners. Um, with, with many thanks to her. But it's fitting for this study because Paul builds his message here around three mysteries. He uses the word mystery to, to talk about three wonderful things. First, he goes into the mystery of God's will. God's purpose is to bring all things together in, in heaven and earth, to bring all things together in Jesus. So there, there's, that, there's that vertical relationship that, that, that Paul sorts through between God and man and how, God ha, a, a, and how Jesus has brought these things together. That's the first mystery. The second mystery that Paul talks about is how God has brought together Jew and Gentile into the church and joined them in Christ. So it's a, it's a brother-to-brother mystery. It's a horizontal relationship that's brought together in Christ. So in Christ, God and man 
are brought together. In Christ, brother and brother, man and man, all nations and peoples and tongues are brought together. And then the third mystery is, is the union of Jesus and the church in one flesh. So there's a union between God and man, there's a union between man and man, and then there's that union between man and Jesus who brings everything together and holds everything together. And that's the third mystery that Paul is going to talk about. Well, this word mystery is kind of curious. We think of a mystery, we think of maybe a, an Agatha Christie novel or a Sherlock's home, uh, Sherlock Holmes mystery, and, or maybe a mystery is something strange or, or something that can't be explained. Well, um, a mystery in Paul's usage is, is a secret that has been revealed at the right time. It's, it's a secret that has been revealed at the opportune time. And now God has revealed these secrets to Paul by the Holy Spirit. And now Paul communicates them to us. And they are knowable, they are wonderful, they are majestic, they are incredible. But now Paul communicates those to us. And that's how, that's how he uses the word mystery. So the book of Ephesians is full of mystery, three great mysteries. It's front-loaded with theology, but it also concerns manners. It's not all um, just uh, intellectual stuff. Uh, Paul covers in this little book how we live together. How do we walk together? How do we love each other? How do I submit to you and how do you submit to me? And how do we submit to each other in, in our marriage relationships, in our homes, in our offices? How do we conduct ourselves? Paul is concerned with our walk. And the way we know this is he uses the word walk over and over and over and over in this book, in this, in this letter. He says, walk worthy of your calling. Walk in holiness, walk in love, walk in light, walk in wisdom, walk in the good works which God has ordained. He says, you used to walk in trespasses and sins. Don't do that anymore. Don't walk like the Gentiles. So the focus of, of this book is not only these mysteries, but the mannerisms, the, the practicalities of life together, how we walk and how we learn to walk together in God's world. Practical instructions for how we, how we carry ourselves confidently in love in Christ. We find our identity in Him. So throughout this letter, we'll encounter this rich, Christ-centered theology, the, the mysteries of God's purposes for bringing humanity together in the church and joining the church to Jesus. And we'll have a great deal of practical application. How do these mysteries frame our daily walk? How do they shape our manners? So mystery and manners is going to be the, uh, the, the, the those will be the two poles we dance around as we work through uh, this letter. Again, thanks to Miss O'Connor for that wonderful title that I am stealing for the next several weeks. Well, let's dive right into this. Um, I, I don't think she'd mind. I'm sure we'd be good friends, right? Um, let's dive right into this. We'll only look at the salutation at the beginning of the letter today, just three verses. Verse one, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. In the letters of the Bible and in the letters of the ancient world, it was customary to start with your own name. We start letters how? We say, dear Mr. Smith, or to whom it may concern, uh, which is such a, a cop-out way to start a letter. I hate starting a letter that way. To whom it may concern. Well, it doesn't concern me, so we'll just pass on this, pass it along. We start letters with the addressee 
But in the ancient world, they started letters with their own name, which seems to make sense. It seems to uh, make sense to not have to look at the bottom of the letter to see who it's from or to look at the return address to see who it's from. We get right of the way who's writing. This is from Paul. We know who Paul is. He's the great missionary from the book of Acts. He's a preacher of the gospel. He is uh, the, the great apostle. And so he calls himself Paul, an apostle. The word apostle was used in classical Greek literature primarily, and this is something I just learned this week, I saw it's used primarily for ships, both cargo ships and military ships. That's the primary use of the word apostle in, uh, in classical Greek literature. Uh, and, and so ships will have a, a payload or a freight and they're sent out with this freight. Less frequently, the word apostle is used for an individual who is sent forth. Uh, you know a little bit of Greek, you know, apostello, they're, they're out sent, away sent, they're sent away. And an apostle is someone, an individual, individual who is sent forth to represent someone else. An apostle is an ambassador or an emissary, an, a, a person freighted with a message, just as a, a cargo ship would be freighted with cargo. So, so this emissary is freighted with a message. And the New Testament writers pick up on this word. They pick up on this word apostle to describe the men who are ambassadors of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are representatives of his kingdom sent as delegates to the kingdoms of this world. Now, in a general sense, we're all apostles. We're all sent forth with a message. We're all freighted with a cargo. And that cargo is the gospel that we take with us as we go. But in a specific sense, there is an apostolic office, a special authority given to those who serve the first century church. As the Bible was being composed, God gave authority to certain men to speak with the very mouth of, of Jesus by the Holy Spirit. So Paul says, um, I'm that, I'm an official delegate chosen and sent forth by Jesus for the purpose of declaring his message. He says... I'm an apostle, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Who's Jesus Christ? We always take that for granted. Maybe do you think Jesus is his first name and Christ is his last name. You know, it was Joseph Christ and Mary Christ and, and they had their baby, Jesus Christ. That was just their last. No, Christ is his title. Jesus, of course, means deliverer, mighty savior. Um, and, and Christ is his title. It means anointed one or Messiah. Paul is the apostle of the anointed Savior, Jesus Christ, chosen, he says, by the will of God. If you know Paul's letter to the Galatian churches, he goes into this, where, uh, this, this um, defense of his ministry where he says, I didn't, I didn't choose this. God chose me to be an apostle. God separated me from birth to this task. And that's how he introduces himself in this letter also. I am an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Who's he writing to? Well, he says, to the saints who are in Ephesus. To the saints who are saints. Saints are not people who have achieved some graduated level of sanctification. Saints, saints are not the celebrities of church history. Uh, in terms you might think, when do we stop calling, we say St. Augustine, we say St. Ambrose, we don't say St. Luther, we don't say St. Calvin, I guess for obvious reasons. At some point, we stop calling them saints. Well, saints are not just the celebrities of the early church. The word saints means holy ones, 
those who are vessels set apart for special use, like the holy furniture and implements of the tabernacle. Saints are those who have access to the sanctuary. And in the Old Covenant, occasionally the high priests could go into the Holy of Holies and have access to God and God's throne on the mercy seat. But in the New Covenant, here's the good news. Everyone is invited, everyone is admitted to the holiest place of all into the throne room of God as long as you're in union with the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a great privilege that we all have access through Jesus and now we all have sanctuary privilege. And because we have sanctuary privilege, now holiness spreads to every part of life. In the Old Covenant, corruption spread. Corruption was uh, always something you were worried about, making things unclean by touching them and, and then touching this other thing. And now uncleanness spread. In the New Covenant, holiness spreads. So God has given us the status of saints so that now we can live holy lives and holiness and life spread. The Roman church has it backwards. The Roman church says if you live an exceptional life, you can become a saint. You, um, you're now in the inner circle. You earn recognition before God. But, but the reverse is true in the scriptures. God has called you a saint. He has equipped you to live a holy life so that now you can go be exceptional. See, it's, it's the reverse. It's backwards. So these saints that Paul is writing to are in Ephesus. Ephesus is a city in Asia Minor. It's modern-day Turkey, right in the center of the coastline near the Aegean Sea. Uh, a city that Paul visited twice on his missionary journeys. The first time Paul visited Ephesus, he was well-received. He went to the synagogue. He met with the elders of the synagogue there. He reasoned with the Jews. And he made such a good impression. Paul didn't always make a great impression everywhere he went, but these elders in the Ephesian synagogue connected with him and they really liked him and they wanted him to stick around, but he had to get on to Antioch. He was just passing through. So Paul left the couple, Priscilla and Aquila, there to minister in Ephesus in his place. Then on his next missionary journey, when he came back through, he passed through Ephesus and he ended up staying there for more than two years. He taught in the synagogue for three months and then there was some conflict in the synagogue. So he moved down the street to a Greek lecture hall and he spent every day for two years teaching in the Greek lecture, lecture hall. Imagine that, Paul preaching every single day of the week, opening the scriptures and talking about the scriptures and in this place. Well, it made an incredible impact on the people of the city, his teaching there every day. Such an impact that the people started giving up their cultic practices. They, they burned their sorcery books, which were really expensive. They could have sold them and made a lot of money, but they burned them and they burned all their magical implements. And also this uh, gospel, this message that Paul was preaching severely impacted the idol business. You see, one of the uh, uh, seven wonders of the ancient world was the temple of Artemis, the temple of Diana. And that was in Ephesus. And it was a big business. Well, worshipers and pilgrims come to Ephesus to, to visit the temple uh, dedicated to Diana. And so the, the local idol business started to suffer because of the work that Paul was doing there. Just going into this lecture hall, opening the scriptures and teaching every day. And he flipped this whole town upside down by the teaching of the gospel. So uh, you know that those who were losing money 
uh, began to revolt. They protested. There was a riot in Ephesus, and Paul slipped away, and he went on to Macedonia. Later on, when Paul's missionary journeys come to an end, he's sailing back across the sea, and he comes down by the coastline of modern-day Turkey, and he doesn't have time to go to Ephesus. He's trying to get to Jerusalem by Pentecost, by the feast. And of course, everybody's telling him, Paul, don't go back to Jerusalem. They're going to kill you. They're going to arrest you. It's not going to be pretty. There are guys there who have taken a vow to, to have your head. Paul, do not go to Jerusalem. But Paul's face is set toward Jerusalem, much like Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. And Paul's not going to be swayed. But when he gets close to Ephesus, they, they put ashore and the elders from Ephesus come out to Paul and they have a little meeting there and Paul encourages them. He exhorts them. He teaches them again from the scriptures. He commissions them to keep preaching the gospel there. And they're weeping the whole time. They're just crying. They don't want him. They want him to stay there and be the pastor of the church at Ephesus. Just stay here. We had such a wonderful ministry together. Would you just stick around and love us? We'll love you. and It'll be great. They're crying, and when Luke writes um, that they left, he uses the word, we departed. That's the English translation. He, Luke, Luke literally says, we had to tear ourselves away from the elders in Ephesus. They tear themselves away, and they get back on the ship, and you know the rest of the story. Paul goes to Jerusalem, and he is indeed arrested. Now, many years later, Paul is in Rome. He's under house arrest, and he starts writing letters to the churches that he visited and the Christians he's familiar with throughout all of his journeys. And one of these letters is this letter that we have in front of us now, the letter to the church in, in Ephesus. Now, according to tradi tra tra tradition, uh, according to tradition, um, Ephesus is where John took Mary, the mother of Jesus, after Jesus um, gave John charge over his mother. Remember on the cross, Jesus gave charge of Mary to John, the beloved apostle. And tradition has it that John and Mary moved up to Ephesus, and that's where they stayed. John might have been the pastor of the church at Ephesus until he was banished to the Isle of Patmos where he wrote um, Revelation. So, so Paul has a significant amount of history with these people, and this church has solid connections and solid associations. Again, recapping quickly, Aquila and Priscilla were there. Apollos spent some time there. If John was there and Mary, the mother of Jesus, was there, that means this is a well-connected church, and there's a great amount of mutual affection between Paul and the church at Ephesus. So now when he's writing this letter to them, he's writing it from a different voice and in a different way than he wrote the letters to the Corinthians or to Thessalonica or to Galatia. In every one of those letters that I just listed, in Corinth and Thessalonica, in Galatia, there is a crisis. There is a predicament. There are sins that need correcting. There are issues that need to be dealt with. But when Paul writes the Ephesian Christians, he doesn't have to spend any time on that. There, there are exhortations here. There are small corrections. But he gets to spend his time weaving this beautiful careful Christology. He doesn't, he doesn't have to spend any time naming names and, and rebuking people by name. He uses up all this space rejoicing in these mysteries and encouraging these Christians in their walk. And so the, these are the saints. A little background. When he says the saints in Ephesus, who's he talking about? That's who he's talking about. He writes to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, you and I might say, 
We're faithful to Christ Jesus, and that's fine. But here Paul begins his message, even in his introduction, with something he's going to restate from many, many different angles. And he's going to keep using this phrase until um, we, we're going to say, oh yeah, I know what he's saying here, because we're going to have to uh, come across it and, and deal with it and respond to it. He's, he's saying that we are in Jesus. This is, this is a message that, 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 that permeates this letter. Our roots are in Jesus. In the Old Covenant... It was important to have your roots in the land, to be in the land, to have your roots grow down deep into the holy land. The holy land was your environment. In the new covenant, we're not blessed in a specific geographic location. We are blessed in Christ. He is where we sink down our roots. He is the environment in which we live and move and have our being. And so to remain in Christ and to abide in Christ is what is necessary for life and all blessing. If you depart, what happens? Well, what happened in the old covenant? When you left the holy land, when you, when you departed, you were cursed. Remember in the book of, of Ruth, Elimelech takes his family out. He leaves Bethlehem, which is literally house of bread. He leaves the house of bread and he goes out and he departs and lives with the Moabites. But there, he found that there's no blessing. There's no, there's no bread outside of, of the uh, Holy Land. There's only death out there. Elimelech died. His sons died. They all left their wives as widows. See, that's what happens when you leave the Holy Land. That's what happens when you leave the place where God has planted you. In the New Covenant, that place is Christ. There is no blessing outside the body of Christ. We must be faithful in Christ, abide in him in order to be blessed. And so Paul is very careful here. It's not a typo. He says, you are faithful in Christ Jesus. And again, that's, that's a theme he's going to pick up again many times. Then he pronounces grace and peace. He says in verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, grace, of course, is unmerited favor. You have been granted an unbelievable, incredible salvation and deliverance, and you didn't do a thing to earn it. Not at all. It's all grace. And peace, he says, total peace. Shalom. This is another word that Paul is going to use several times in this letter. There are three dimensions to this peace that, that Paul pronounces upon these Christians. The first, he declares, is that you have peace with God. When we are in a state of rebellion and sin against God, God is angry with us. God is angry with us and we are at war with him. In unbelief, we hate him and we want to tear him off his throne. And he isn't happy with us because we're arrogant and we're tiny and we're foolish and we're perverted. There must be peace between us and God in, in order for there to be life. And so in order for there to be peace with God and man, Jesus had, has made peace on our behalf. And Jesus is the shalom. Jesus is the rest between us and God. Jesus has made a treaty. And so we're not at war with God anymore. That's why Paul can pronounce peace. There's peace between you and God. That's the first thing. The second dimension, the second kind of shalom is inner peace, what, what we might call psychological peace, freedom from guilt, freedom from inner tension. In our fallen state, we are not only at war with God, we are at war with ourselves. 
When, when Adam sinned, he sinned against God, but he also sinned against himself and he sinned against his created purpose. He was at war with himself. That's why he's ashamed and runs off to hide. Peace with God brings with it inner peace, personal peace. In Psalm 4, we, we hear this. I will lie down in peace and sleep for you alone, O Yahweh, make me dwell in safety. Peace between us and God brings a calming to the inner turmoil because we know that God is sovereign and we know that God is good and we know that he is our provider. And as we heard in our gospel reading this morning and our Psalter reading, he is our shepherd. We know this and have peace and lie down in safety. And then thirdly, that shalom is not only between us and God and between us and ourselves, but between us and others. That, that peace flows out to every sphere of life and it creates peace between you and your neighbor, between you and creation. Proverbs 16, seven says, if a man's ways please the Lord, even his enemies will be at peace with him. <clears throat> so if we want peace with our neighbor and if we want peace with ourselves, we must first have peace with God. And conversely, when somebody is at war with everything around them, when they're, when they're constantly at war with everyone and everything, you can bet that they're also at war with themselves. That war out there is just an overflow of the war that's going on in here, and they are also at war with God. And also we can understand and say that there will be no peace on earth. There will no be, be no peace between brother and brother, man and man, no no inner psychological peace on earth until mankind makes peace with God. And so Paul pronounces this peace. This is the peace of Christ, that you are at rest. You're no longer at war with God. Don't be at war with yourself, and you're no longer at war with each other. We'll watch as this theme of peace uh, develops throughout this letter. And this brings us to the first sentence in this hymn of praise that begins this letter to the Ephesians. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And we're just looking at that first phrase today. We'll look at the rest of the hymn next week. But this opening prayer, this opening hymn goes from verse 3 to verse 14. And it's one continuous stream of worship. It starts with this benediction. Blessed be God. Now that's kind of a curious phrase to our way of thinking isn't it? What does it mean to bless God or to say God is blessed? We, we may have in our minds that blessing is magical. Maybe you um, bless uh, food and make it kosher, or you bless water and make it holy, or you bless uh, a, a cursed ring or an amulet and you take the curse away. You bless this, this magical sense that just saying some, some, some words gives something some supernatural properties. Well, well, none of that has any basis in reality or the scriptures. But in a wider Christian usage, to bless something is, is to, um, or, or to bless someone is to give them something they need or something they want, to, to bring them a gift. If I bless you, I've done something for you, or I've, I've, I've given you something, or I've praised you. But how does any of this make sense in relation to God? How do we, how do we give God something? How do we bless Him? I know what it means for God to bless me. I, I live and receive God's blessings every day. But, but what does it mean for me to bless God or to say God is blessed? But in fact, this, is, this ought not to be so curious if we know the scriptures because the predominant subject of blessing throughout the scriptures, throughout the Bible, the predominant subject of blessing is God himself. Man repeatedly in the scriptures pr 
pronounces blessing on God. In Psalm 72, blessed be Yahweh God, the God of Israel, who only does wondrous things and blessed be his glorious name forever and let the whole earth be full of his glory. That that blessed be God and blessed be his name is a construction that features heavily in the Psalms and the prayers of the Old Testament. David prays in 1 Chronicles 29. He said, blessed are you, Yahweh God of Israel, our father forever and ever. In Luke 1, we have the song of Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. That we call that prayer, that we call that song, the Benedictus. And because it starts with a benediction, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. In Romans and 1 Corinthians, Paul speaks of God as the one who is blessed forever and ever. So in the scriptures, we hear this and we sing this and we pray this repeatedly, that God is blessed, that God is blessed and blessed be God. Well, the scriptures say then, and and if we receive this and we process this, we understand that the scriptures say God himself is blessed. Well, what does that mean? Well, that identifies him as the source of all blessing. Everything good comes from him. The word that Paul uses here for blessing is the word we get uh, the word eulogy from. You, anything that has an E-U in front of it is good. You, logos is word, you, good word. The blessing here is a, is a good word. Man blesses God with his tongue with good words. God is enthroned on the praises of his people. Man thanks God for his good gifts. Uh, another synonym that you can slot in when you see the word blessed and, and one, one word and a phrase that gives color to the word blessed is supremely happy. Like in the Beatitudes, supremely happy are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of God. Supremely happy are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Supremely happy are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And if you think, wait a minute, that doesn't, that's all confusing. That's counterintuitive. What does it mean? Happy are those who mourn. But that's just the point, isn't it? Jesus is turning it inside out. Jesus brings blessedness, the state of happiness, this, this state of complete soul contentment in his provision. To say that God is blessed is to say that God is, is happy. Now, he displays flashes of anger against sin but that doesn't mean that he's always grumpy, that he's always angry. He, he flashes his anger against sin because sin prevents our happiness. Sin is, is preventing us from enjoying life in him. And so God's trajectory is always toward happiness and blessedness is the synonym. What's built into this biblical concept of, of, of blessing God or blessing God's name, what are we doing there? Well, We're giving thanks for what God has done as our creator. We are praising God for who he is as redeemer. And we demonstrate that thanks by bringing gifts. Blessing God, saying blessed be God, means that we acknowledge God as the giver of all good things, as Paul does here. He he broadens us out. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's blessed who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So, so God responds to our blessing him by blessing us. God is the blessed one who is always blessing. And we receive the blessing and we bless his name and he blesses us again. It's this, it's this loop where we're praising him and he's blessing us and we're acknowledging him as the source of all blessing. You may have heard um, songs or maybe you've read some devotional literature over the years that teaches 
this, that, that giving thanks or praise to God is not something we do because of anything that he's done for us, but we just praise him for who he is. All these blessings, these are just distractions from knowing him, and, and, and all we need to do is just praise him for himself. That sounds real spiritual, but do you know who else says something like that? That's actually satanic. <laughs> Honestly, you think, whoa, hey, that's, that's heavy. No, Satan actually says that. In Job, he says to God, can, can Job praise God for nothing? Does, does Job praise God for just who God is? Or is Job praising God for his gifts and his benefits? Um, and, and Satan's questions are always tricky. Uh, Satan's questions use this wobbly logic. And so, so the question is, can, God, can, can Job love God outside of everything that God has done for him? And the answer to that question is, is obviously not because Job is contingent. Job is a created man. So even when all of his material and physical blessings are stripped away, how does Job praise God? He still praises him as creator and as redeemer. Job is still contingent on God's blessings. He says, I know that my redeemer lives. He loves God for what he has done for him. And he still blesses God for his blessings. To assume that we could praise God outside of what he has done for us assumes that you can stand outside of being a creature. It assumes that you can put yourself in a place of independence as if you were self-created and that you weren't dependent every moment on, on the blessings of God. Now, if I were able to do that, if I were able to separate, it, separate myself from my creatureliness, if I were able to separate myself as from being a man who has been redeemed by God, my, my redeemer, then what would that make me? That would make me like God. I would be setting myself up as a God myself because I, I don't need your, your provision. I don't need your creation or your redemption. See, um, to say, I don't need to thank God for creating me or redeeming me. I just want to know him for him. That's, that's to make yourself a God. It's, it's, I, I'm not saying it's intentional. It's just a subtle error. It's a subtle error. Uh, but, but that's what Satan tried to do, right? Satan tried to be equal with God. We, we, we don't want to do that. You, you can't praise God for nothing is the point. You can't bless God for nothing. Your thanksgiving is always a response to his good gifts. You cannot know God except as the blessed one who blesses you. You cannot know God apart from him being your creator and your redeemer. And in fact, Francis Schaeffer said to be a Christian, you have to bow to God twice once as creator and once as redeemer. He is the fountain of blessing and there is no other way that we can know him. And that is what is required of us to bow to him as creator and as redeemer and to be swept into this exchange of blessing brought into the life of the triune God is, is what it means to have life and peace and identity, knowing who we are in Jesus, being at peace. So by beginning here, with this benediction, this, this burst of praise is, is how he opens here this letter. It shows us that at the foundation of everything that Paul is going to teach us from here on, at the foundation is gratitude. Our relationship to the triune God is this gurgling fountain of continual blessing and thanksgiving, overturning and mixing and, and stirring up this, this vortex of blessedness that we're caught up in. It's not an individual thing 
or a personal thing. It's communal so that blessing spills out and washes over everyone and everything around us. We who are blessed, bless. We bless God. We bless our neighbor. We bless our, our friends and our wives and our children and our coworkers and our employees. That's what we do. That's what we do. We, our mouths are a fountain of blessing. If we don't bless, if we make a habit of reserving thanksgiving, if we quench gratitude, withhold it. If we bury gratitude in discontentment and grumbling, what makes us different from an unbeliever? Ungrateful, carping, complaining, nagging Christians look strangely similar to unbelievers. In fact, unbelievers are marked primarily by their lack of gratitude toward God. They're not thankful. Isn't that, isn't that the end of what Paul builds in Romans chapter 1? They're, they're not thankful. They're not thankful. If you do not exude gratitude, what makes you different from a non-Christian? If you are not consciously aware that every second of your life, you are awash in the incomprehensible, undeserved provision of God. If you're not aware of that, what makes you different from a thankless, prideful heathen? Not, not much. We who are blessed, bless. And one of the many ways we bless each other, I bless you, you bless me, is verbally, through a good word. That's the word here, blessedness, good word, like thank you, like I love you, like I'm, I'm so proud of you, like I'm excited about what is happening in your life. I'm not jealous, I'm rejoicing with you. In order to make this blessedness concrete and real, you have to tell each other, do not reserve gratitude. Do not withhold thanksgiving from each other. God does this, doesn't he? He says, well done, my good and faithful servant. Not, well done, my perfect servant. No, just faithful. You're just faithful and I'm saying, well done. God says this to his son. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. God does this. He's our example. And we are called to do this as well. The people around you in your life live in a sea of criticism. They live with complaints and harping. You do not know what it means to people when you say, thank you. When you say, I love you. You know what? I am really grateful for what you've done for me. God's people radiate thanksgiving. And I want you to know that. I never want you to forget this. I think I say it a lot, but I, I don't say it enough because I don't say it every day. But I'm thankful for you. I hope you're thankful for me, but I'm thankful for every one of you. I love you. I'm not ashamed of you. I, I'm not ashamed to be seen with you. I'm not embarrassed of you. I love you. I'm, I'm proud of you. I'm thankful for you. And this is one of the goals. I'm going to wrap this up with this. This is one of my goals as we work through this book. I want you to be thankful for what we have together in Jesus as a church. I want you to be thankful for this. We're going to go through some things here in Ephesians that you and I take seriously as a congregation together, but things that we take seriously that make us different from lots and lots of people in the evangelical world. And I don't want you to be ashamed of those things. I want you to be secure and confident in those things.
There are things that a lot of Christians don't really care about. Not much attention is given to them. But I want you to give thanks for these things and rejoice in them. Don't, don't get embarrassed by our uniqueness. Don't, don't get ashamed of each other. Be kind of ashamed that we're so weird or, or ashamed that, you know, we're funny looking or whatever. Don't. Be thankful. Now, I'm not asking you to be proud. I'm not asking you to be arrogant. I'm not asking you to be overconfident but to be content and happy at peace and at rest in, in confidence of who we are in Jesus. And don't apologize for it. So, so be prepared. We're, we're going to talk about some of those things. But it starts with gratitude. If you can't bring yourself to bless God, to say thank you and express gratitude, if your tongue isn't swelling with praise for all the absolutely phenomenal things that God is doing for you, if you are not bursting with praise, you are at war with God. If you are not grateful, you are at war with God. And nobody ever won a war with God. Nobody. He's, you know, five million to zero. I mean, he's infinite to zero. His record is perfect. Nobody has ever won a war with him. Submit to him. Bless God. Express gratitude. Be thankful for how he has made you, for where he has placed you, and have peace. Let's pray.